I'm going to actually have that said author come and read our scripture for us from Philippians chapter 3. So if you would stand for the reading of God's word here, Philippians 3, 1 through 12. Is it hot in here? I think it's hot. Um, Philippians 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in this death, in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, thank you for that word. That word itself simply read has the profound power to change life forever. Help us to explore it now in a way that's understandable, that honors you, shapes us in Christ's name. Amen. Originally, we had planned to look at Daniel chapter 7 this week, and uh, I don't really have a good reason for not doing that, and then I was kind of tired of Daniel, and there's a huge genre change between 6 and 7 to back to apocalyptic, and we preached through Revelation, I'm like, I just don't want to do this again. So, um, we were only going to do seven anyway, and then next week, Taylor is going to kick us off in a sermon series in the book of Acts, which I have no idea how long that's going to be. We'll do some. We'll, we'll stop for brief you know, bits here and there. And in Daniel 7 is a, a picture of the ascension, uh, a vision of the ascension of Christ, which Taylor will talk about some next week. And so I was meditating on Philippians 3 this week. I was teaching it in a class, and I'm speaking on it at I, uh, RUF at IU this coming week. I thought, let's just... Let's just dive into this, mostly because, and I say this with all seriousness, I want you to be happy. I do. I want me to be happy. I want you to be deeply, joyfully, fully happy in Christ. And that's what this passage is about. So we're just going to take, uh, uh, take a beat and look at Philippians 3, 1 through 12 this week. It's about rejoicing in the Lord and having joy in Christ. Sidney Pollock Sidney Pollack may be a name known to you, a famous American film director and producer. He was responsible for movies like Tootsie, Robin Williams, uh, Absence of Malice, Out of Africa, The Firm with uh, Tom Cruise and The Interpreter with Nicole Kibben. I think that was one of his last films that he did. Uh, he worked right up until his death. 
and maintain this continually grueling pace of film production and keeping this high, this high intensity schedule. And shortly before his death in 2008, an article was published that explained why he did this, why he kept such a grueling and demanding schedule when his family was begging him to stop and saying, this is shortening your life. You're already sick. This is making you worse. We want to spend time with you. Would you please stop? Sidney Pollack said, every time I finish another picture, I feel I've earned my stay for another year or so. Every time I finish another picture, I feel like I've earned my stay for another year or so. Theologically speaking, we would say that Sidney Pollock was seeking righteousness through adhering to a law. He had an unwritten law in his mind, which was, I will do good work. And let's be honest, he did good work. Rarely have people done as good a work as Sidney Pollock. I will do good work, and if I do good work, I will be okay. He had perhaps a righteousness of uh, being approved of and do, being successful, and being admired. And if I do that good work, I will be okay. The passage that Megan read for us from Philippians 3 says, in some ways, all of us understand Sidney Pollock, or maybe he understands us. That in our flesh, in our natural inclination as people, apart from the Spirit, we seek what the Bible calls righteousness, and I'll unpack that, and seek it through adherence to law. Whether that law is religious or cultural or even personal, something you've devised, righteousness through law is a human condition and it robs us of the joy that could be ours in Christ. So what we want to see today is that joy in Christ is found by, it's a two, two, two moves here, rejecting achieved righteousness and then embracing received righteousness. Rejecting achieved righteousness and embracing received righteousness. And eventually we're just going to make three points here. All people seek righteousness, everybody. All people are inclined to seek righteousness through law of some kind. Law being Again, it could be religious, it could be cultural, it could be self-created, even if it's the law of, I shall seek no law. I shall be my own person at every turn. Okay, that's a law. Anytime you say shall, it's a law, right? Uh, and then the third point is that we are invited instead to receive and rest in a righteousness as a gift, a better righteousness. And that's where joy is found. On the bottom of your insert there, I put the definition of the word righteousness. It's a definition from the Old Testament word sedek or sedek, which mean, it means whole, complete, right, true, just, or justified. In Hebrew literature, when referring to a people or two persons, it, it often has the sense of a covering or a robe. What makes you okay? What makes you whole, complete, just, right, true? So Philippians 3, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. So what follows is about is how to do that very thing, how to have joy. It's a theme in the book of Philippians. We haven't been to Philippians. You just have to trust me. It's in there. And it's really coming into focus here in these last few verses. And it continues, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. What he's saying is, you probably have heard this before. I am repeating what you well may already know. Maybe you've already been shaped by it. Maybe it's been profound for you and probably you've forgotten part of it. So it's no big deal for me to repeat it for you because it's good for you. 
it is good often to return to the gospel because there's a deeper complexity to it as life goes on, as we see more and more of it. And then we hear it differently each time we come. The gospel is, is it's large, right? It's like, it's like maybe like the ocean where you can walk out on the beach at ankle deep and you can get down on your knees and you can explore the bottom there. You might find something cool like a shell or somebody's necklace that they dropped, whatever. You could say, I have explored the ocean. But have you explored the ocean at that point? No, right? All you have to do is keep walking. Oh, there's a lot more here, right? The gospel is huge, And all we have to do to know more and more of it is keep living day by day. Keep living honestly day by day. And the implications of the gospel keep multiplying if we keep pressing into it and pressing into all that Jesus is for us honestly. And if we keep listening to his word and keep in community, the implications grow more robust and more robust all the time. And if we try to live sort of the new depth of the complexity of our life in the next season or the season we're in now, holding on to the memory of the old exploration, we get stale, frankly. And we're like, ah, oh, that, that was just, I, I, I know that back then I was shaped by it, but it doesn't seem real anymore. Why is that? Because you haven't come back to it. And that's why Paul says, you know what? It's no trouble for me to say the same thing to you because nine times out of 10, you hear it differently because your life has changed. And it is deep and rich and profound. Come on back to the center here. And it's not just the life gets complex that fouls things up here. There are folk who either intentionally or unintentionally in this passage, disrupt the faith community by adding to the gospel or taking away from the gospel or as Jude 3 says, to the faith once delivered to the saints. And uh, the Apostle Paul had strong words for these folks. Look at verse two. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So in this case, it was those who probably were professing Christians who had come in to the church in Philippi and off the spot, off the side, were like, hey, we got, I got some secret knowledge for you. You also, also really need to have some of the Jewish identity markers like circumcision and maybe some of the, the ceremonies and all the stuff, right? So the, kind of the same argument that was going on in Galatia, you know, in addition to Jesus, you need this. And Paul was very clear about the false teachers. He called them dogs, (laughs) which was not a compliment. Like we may think that, oh, that mean they were soft and cuddly. No, so nobody had, very few people had pets of dogs in those days. They were wild, mangy pack animals that killed stuff and ate it. It's not a compliment to call somebody a dog in the Bible. Sometimes, though, it is necessary for Christian leaders in a locale in a local church, to say such things. And he doesn't soften this up at all. They know who he's talking about. He calls them dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. Uh, I think, just honestly, it's a lot more complicated now for pastors and elders to do this. Because, like, you don't know that those dogs and evildoers could be thousands of miles away on the internet. And it's kind of like, how, how is this in our congregation? Or it could be through publishing houses. Like, you just don't know. Uh, there are such a thing as false teachers. You know that, right? All of them are persuasive. That's kind of goes with the territory. That's why there's warnings against them. Right? So it's good. It, if your pa- I'm not I'm not about to do this in this moment. But like, if your pastors would 
Don't be surprised. Because if you say, well, that person doesn't seem off to me. Yeah, that's the whole point of a false teacher. And frankly, we know more than you do lots of times. I mean, really. And we read this stuff all the time, understand the philosophical and theological backgrounds, and that's why we encourage, hey, go take classes at ITS. Read, study, here's some good books, here's some, that's where we have a book rack, dig down here. We want you to think for yourself, but also we understand there's a whole world out there, and sometimes that world is full of dogs. Hey, Paul understood that, that's what he's talking about here. Okay, I have, I'm not about to say something about a false teacher. I was just saying, this is in the text, there we go. Okay, um, verse three. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is saying, like, there's an irony here. These folks are saying, you also need to be circumcised when the irony is circumcision in the Old Testament always, even in the Old Testament, was pointing to a cleansed heart, which you get in Jesus. So we who are in Christ are actually the true circumcision. It's the same argument he was making in the book of Galatians. We says two things, glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. To glory in Christ means we make much of Jesus. We boast of him. We delight in him. We say he is the most valuable. Our glory, our weight, our specialness is because of Jesus and we put absolutely no confidence in the, the person, in myself. Right? What I can accomplish, what I can produce, what I can avoid, my resume. That's what it means to follow Christ, to, put, to glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. But the false teachers were creeping in and saying something very uh, alluring. Yes, oh yes, of course we want to glory in Christ Jesus. And let's put a little confidence in the flesh. Let's put a little confidence in you. It is Jesus. Oh yes, it is Jesus. And it's you. Understand, it's you. What you can do, what you can avoid, the resume you can build. Now, no, don't, don't forget Jesus. But the and is a problem. Place some confidence in the flesh. And the Apostle Paul says, that's a way of death. And it's not a hypothetical reality to me. If anyone would have reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul says, it's me. Verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's going to say, boasting is self-destruction. Attempting to create a righteousness of our own is impossible and it blocks enjoyment of God. And by the way, I have a really good resume. This is, this is weird language to us, but it was impressive to him and to his people. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He was from the right family. Did they, always they were supposed to circumcise baby boys in ancient Israel on the eighth day. Did they always do that? No, they didn't. Of course they didn't. They had to travel to do that, all that kind of stuff. But his family did it right. He was from the right family. The tribe of Benjamin. What does that matter? There were two tribes in the Old Testament that remained faithful to Yahweh, Judah and Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. He was from the beginning. He was some convert to Judaism. As to the law of Pharisee. Now, we read the word Pharisee and we think those guys are terrible. We only say that because of the Gospels. Right? They were the faithful followers of Yahweh in that time. They were serious. They believed what they said. They weren't in it for political power. They weren't in it for, for cultural capital. They believed what they said. They were serious followers of Yahweh. So by saying a Pharisee, that was a, that was a good thing. 
uh, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, we don't think that's a good thing, but he wasn't just talk. He was action. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Doesn't mean, does not mean he, he was perfect, but he took the law of God in the Old Testament seriously. That means, means he was honest about his sin. He used the sacrificial system. It meant, frankly, Paul was a good neighbor. He cared for the poor. He cared for the orphan. He cared for the immigrant in their midst, the sojourner. He was generous with his money. He did justly, loved mercy, and walked humbly with his God, just like he was supposed to. He had a great resume. And the Old Testament law was the means his community accepted for being okay. And he pursued it as well as anyone ever had. But then Jesus came in and turned Paul's life upside down. And he learned that all those things, those aren't bad, those are good, unless they're a source of righteousness. And Jesus comes into Paul's life and teaches him that even those good things weren't a source of life, they were pointing to Jesus all the time. And so he says in verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And he unfolds it more in this, okay, verses eight through 11 is one sentence in Greek. It's actually one sentence here too, but it's like, this is a terrible run-on sentence, like in, in English. But actually there's, they, ESV, they did break it up into two, sorry. Uh, but there's a, it's a rhetorical effect of piling on. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness as my own that comes from law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's one sentence sort of like with rhetorical impact. He's got two aims here, and this is where we're going to camp just for a minute. He's got a negative aim and a positive aim, and I think we're encouraged to map our life onto this. First negative, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or comes from law. There's not actually a definite article there. A righteousness that I achieve or that is ascribed to me by other people that I somehow create. And this is just revealing the reality that everyone seeks righteousness. Sounds like an old dusty word from like the King James Bible. We usually think about like righteousness is doing the right thing. It's more than that. Again, it is the compulsion to be whole, complete, right, true, just, justified, often referring to a sense of covering or a robe. Since the Garden of Eden and our first parents, our representatives sinned, we have been alienated from God both consciously and unconsciously, and we have sensed a lack in us. That's why St. Augustine says, O God, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. We want, we work for, we long to be right, righteous, whole, complete, true. 
I think there's a deep sort of psychological truth this passage is uncovering. That everyone seeks righteousness and we are inclined to do this in our natural condition through something here that is called law. Now here, it's the Old Testament law, which makes sense for them, right? That's their context. Romans 2 says those without the Old Testament law become a law to themselves, right? Because we are, we are compelled as all people to manufacture laws or receive laws from our culture and say, if I do that, I will be okay. Even if you're an anarchist, which means like, I will have no law, which is, of course, a law. Right? You're ah, not a law there, not a law there. I'm okay because uh, nobody will put their you know, power or oppression on me. Okay, yeah, that's a law, right? So that's how you're okay, cool. In the, uh, that famous theological work, Rocky One, which I cannot believe this, it's almost 50 years old. It's painful to say that. Taylor asked me if I'd seen it in the theater as a child. I did not. But <laughs> has anybody seen the movie Rocky One, the original Rocky movie? Sure. Oh my goodness. Okay, so has anybody seen any of the Rocky movies? Okay, right. so some more honest people here. Um, I feel like you've all seen them. There's a thread that runs through there. Rocky is always afraid of being a bum from the neighborhood. He's just a guy from the streets of Philly that nobody ever believed in. And he's always feels like he's punching above his weight class, literally. But he always feels like he shouldn't be where he is. And it's, it comes to the fore in Rocky 1 where he's facing the world champion Apollo Creed. And Rocky is the undersized underdog. And he doesn't think he can win. And he's not as good as Apollo Creed. And he confesses to his then girlfriend. They get married in Rocky 2. Adrian, he said, he said Adrian... All I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance against Creed before. It doesn't even matter if I win. It doesn't matter if he opens my head. <laughs> I just want to go the distance. Because if I go the distance, if I'm still standing with that, when that last bell rings, I will know for the first time in my life that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. Rocky Balboa had a righteousness of not being a bum. The law, I just have to go the distance. Some people might say, oh, I have to win, I have to get a TKO, whatever. He just said, I just have to go the distance. See, law is flexible because it serves righteousness. I just don't want to be a bum. If I'm not a bum, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be complete then I'll be whole. I just don't want to be a bum. He had not bum righteousness. It was a false righteousness. But we understand Rocky and Sidney Pollock and the Apostle Paul. Like, are you aware of your false righteousnesses that you construct? Maybe from your upbringing, you may still be wrestling with them. You have a righteousness uh, from my, my uh, sometimes I don't know, well, we'll disclose a little bit. My dad was insane. And in the small town I came from, no, I don't, he was, schizophrenic, schizophrenic. Um, he was the fool of my small town. I remember looking over in a seventh grade basketball game, seeing people laugh at my dad. A righteousness I've struggled with is I will not be a fool. There will not be a piece of information that I do not know 
that other people in the room know, right? That's a false righteousness. And the way I get to it is the law of knowing every single detail. It's sick. It robs joy, right? We have false righteousnesses developed from our childhood and from our own sin pattern and from our parents. Maybe your parents were like A plus strivers and you need to measure up all the time. And they never said anything like that, but you just kind of caught it. And you have a success righteousness. Do you know the, the false righteousnesses you have? Could be wealth righteousness, success righteousness, beauty righteousness. Could be theological precision righteousness. I think a lot of people become pastors out of self-righteousness. They want to be theologically precise and be people in the know. It could be a... Uh, it could be a social justice righteousness. I think, I think a lot of what we call social justice in America is just a way of self-salvation for people trying to do things and feel better about themselves. Again, these aren't bad things. Theological precision, good stuff. Uh, social justice, good stuff, potentially. Wealth, not a bad, potentially. Success, fine. We could have uh, not a liberal righteousness. We could have uh, not a Trump fan righteousness. It's funny to me, like the last eight, eight years or so, how many Christians say, like, I'm conservative. No, I'm not a Trump fan. Okay, fine, I don't even care. But like, you gotta get that in there. Why? Because I have a not a Trump fan righteousness. I wanna not be seen like that in your eyes. Now, maybe you are a Trump fan righteousness. I don't know. Maybe you, you have the opposite. I don't know. Uh, I'm a beast in the gym righteousness. Education righteousness. I'm smart and with it righteousness. Relationship righteousness. If Mr. Right comes along, everything will be better. It will not be better. <laughs> it might be better. It won't be great. If Mrs. Right comes along, oh, everything will be complete. It won't be complete. Reputation righteousness. Now we could go on, right? Um, I think most of the reason, most of the reason we're anxious, discouraged, angry, frustrated and sometimes fearful is that we have erected a law and a false righteousness and it's not working or it is working and we're afraid it will go away. I know that's the case in my life. And a lot of times we can get at this by sort of the emotions that are sort of uh, tied to all this. Uh, if we fall apart when something is threatened, look, if we're fearful of losing something or being accused of doing something or not doing something, if we're angry, anxious, we find ourselves judging others, these are often places where we have erected false righteousnesses and laws to get there. And our culture just feeds this to us. Oh, you have a law? Let us help you get there better. You have a law of you, you're a beast in the gym righteousness? Let me give you a better workout. Let me help you make more money. Let me help you have this diet so you will look thinner because you have thinner in the mirror righteousness, thinner than my neighbor righteousness, whatever. Um, smarter righteousness, you need to go to this school righteousness. Our, we just, it just feeds it, our, in, a, in a culture where sin insinuates itself. Of course, it just feeds that because it doesn't know about a better kind of righteousness that we have. Or if you're lacking a law, you can get one. Right, let us give you a new law to obey. There's a better way. 
There's an alternative way of joy. Look at verse eight. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Righteousness from God. This, especially in the Pauline writings, is what we would call the righteousness of Christ. All of Jesus' life, all of his obedience, all of his quality, all of his faithfulness, all of his beauty, all of his love, all of his affection for the Father, all of his perfection, all of his purity, all of his beauty, all of his wholeness, completeness, rightness, trueness, justness, all that he is, is offered to you as a gift and only a gift that we receive with open hands. That's it. Because we are united to him, verse nine says, found in him. So that Jesus' righteousness, friends, if you're in Christ, is counted as yours. And by that, you stand before God. And when we see it, we stand before everybody else. On the back of your insert here, I put a quote from the reformer Martin Luther. When basically he got a hold of this, he set Europe on fire with the gospel. Uh, Luther writes, like the earth does not create rain, uh, nor is able by its own strength, labor, and travail to obtain rain, but receives it as a mere gift of God from above, so this heavenly righteousness is given us by God without our works or merit. As much, therefore, as the earth of itself is able to do in getting and procuring to itself seasonable showers of rain to make it fruitful, even so much we are able to do by our own strength and works in winning this heavenly and eternal righteousness, and therefore we shall never be able to attain to it unless God himself, by mere imputation and by his unspeakable gift, bestows it upon us. He's like, how do you get this righteousness? Well, how does the earth get rain? What's it do? It just sits there and rain comes on it. Christian, how do you get this righteousness of Jesus? You open your hands, you sit there, and it falls on you because you're united to Jesus. God gives you this righteousness, that's how. And how's the other way? There is no other way. That's it. So we receive that righteousness, and then we just like rejoice in it. Paul calls it in verse eight, the surpassing worth. The something super better is the Greek there. It's what it really is. Super echo. Um, the other things that we might erect in our life might be fine and good. They might be good, right? Good works are good. Uh, being faithful is good. Theological precision is good. Appropriate concern for social justice, that's good. But it's not good like Jesus' righteousness is good. I mean, it's like going out at night, looking up in the sky and seeing some stars shining, like those are really shining stars. Those really shine. But you go to bed, come up, get up the next day, you go out at noon, you don't see those stars anymore. Why? Because they're gone? They're not gone. Something else has risen that is far brighter to your senses. The sun. 
Christ's righteousness, other things are fine. Christ's righteousness is surpassing in its worth. And this is something we take by faith. It doesn't mean it's not true. It just means we can't touch it. So I get quarterly uh, retirement statements for my, all the stuff, you know, because I've got to think about that someday. And uh, they don't send me a picture of a stack of cash. Maybe you get that. I don't get that. I get a number in black and white on a piece of paper. And I look at that and I trust it. I believe by faith that whatever group, Northwestern Mutual or Geneva Benefits or all, well, I got several. I'm like, they're saying, they're telling the truth. That's not an unreasonable act of trust, right? Because it's secured by something that's a relatively, you know, secure company. The righteousness of Christ is secured by the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. Far more important, weighty, and significant than Northwestern Mutual. It's not unreasonable to take this by faith, by trust, to ourselves over and over and over again and just enjoy it. To say something like, I, Roger Williams, and you know me, and, and it, it, if you know bad things about me, I promise you it is far worse than you think. And yet, I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you're in Christ, you can say the exact same thing about you. I always pick on Paul because he's in the front row. Paul Johnson has the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's true, guys. We consider that reality and actively take delight in it. And then this is very important. We reject false righteousnesses actively. Call this repentance. And we keep rejecting them. In verse seven, Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That's a past action. So when we come to Christ, we say, you know what? Uh, Jesus surpasses all of these other things. I count them as loss. They were in the asset column, but what makes me important, I'm removing them from that column and Jesus is my righteousness alone. But then in verse eight, he says, I count, which is kind of hard in the English, but it's present tense ongoing, right? I count Everything is lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And he actually gets pretty graphic here in verse 8. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now every good Greek interpreter says, reminds us that that word rubbish, scubala, is not the word for trash. It's the word for human excrement. It's dung. So, I clean this up a little bit because of the age range of this group. We are supposed to get how striking that is. Can you imagine if you're not like a teenage boy, can you imagine showing off a diaper? Like, ooh, somebody comes in your home. Hey, let me show you this. Got a new fireplace here. It's really great. You know, all this kind of stuff. New flooring. Oh, let me show you this on the table. This diaper full of scubala. <laughs> People are like, what is wrong? What's wrong with you? Like, what's in that diaper? I mean, it's okay, and it's good and right and necessary for natural function. It's not designed to take glory in. Right? It's good, but not glorious. Why do we glory in these other things? 
They were never designed for our righteousness. And Paul is trying to make a point here. It stinks. When we take glory in these good but things that were never designed for our righteousness, it stinks. So the Christian then, as Tim Keller would always say this, is not just the person who repents of their sin. They repent of their righteousness as well. The things we've elevated and said, if I get this, then I'll be okay. We turn from those as well. It's scubala. So there's tremendous capacity here for individual joy, I think, as Francis Schaeffer said, substantial psychological healing. It means whatever you go into, whatever day you go into, whatever interaction you go into, one thing is not on the table. That is your righteousness, your completeness, your wholeness. You, could, you can receive criticism from someone and say, uh, okay, you might be right. It's the fact that it may be worse than you think because my righteousness isn't in performing perfectly. But you can also receive criticism from somebody and because your righteousness isn't in their opinion, if they're wrong, you can say, I don't think you're right. You're free, you're totally free because of the righteousness of Christ. And if you forget that, you treat something as if it's adding to or subtracting from your righteousness, you can just come to yourself and say, duh, scubala. It's rubbish. There's potential for communal joy here as well. If you turn on the back of your insert, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. That is the outward signs of appearance of, of being impressive or not impressive. In, in the faith community, we regard no one from the standards of impressive or not impressive, whatever standards. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Remember, Jesus was regarded as unimpressive. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And here's the, the money statement from this passage. For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that uh, in him we might become the righteousness of God. What's that saying? God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin by taking on our sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so I am looking at people who, in spite of themselves, are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and you are as well. And this is saying, this is how we must look at each other first. What happens in a community if we treasure each other with that lens? I would say, like, we give each other the benefit of the doubt. We're encouraging each other. We're supporting each other. And largely this happens, but, like, this is, it's so easy to say, I want to bring in this other cultural standard to begin to judge you by. And that is death to a community. And the good news is Jesus has died, so that doesn't have to happen. And the rest of this passage makes clear, we're not going to jump into it. This is the way of depth knowing of Jesus. And it's enduring and ongoing, and we're not alone in this. Look at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, 
but I press on, keep doing this stuff, keep enjoying this received righteousness, keep rejecting this false righteousness I'm trying to build on my own. I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Jesus has done something. He made me his own. He's got me in his grip. Therefore, I, from that secure perspective of being united in him and found in him, keep saying, look at this silly false righteousness I'm erecting. I turn away from it and embrace the righteousness of Christ that he freely gives me. Are you anxious today? Are you angry today? Frustrated today? Restless today? Friends, I want to encourage you that it's likely related to a righteousness that doesn't come from Christ. And right here at this table is proof that he has made you his own. And he has a hold of you. And he simply says, would you come and enjoy me and my righteousness freely given to you? If you're in Christ, I want to invite you to this table. I'm going to pray and invite you to come forward.